Well, good evening. Take your Bible and turn to the Old Testament to the book of Psalms, to Psalm 42. Psalm 42. Psalm 42, and God's word says this, For the choir director, a mascal of the sons of Korah, As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember and pour out my soul within me, for I used to go along with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. O my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember thee from the land of the Jordan, from the peaks of Hermon of Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of thy waterfalls. All thy breakers and thy waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and his song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to to God, my rock, why hast thou forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. And I'm going to continue reading. I'm going to read verse uh, chapter 43, Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man, for thou art the God of my strength. Why hast thou rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Oh, send out thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to thy holy hill and to thy dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and upon the lyre I shall praise thee, O God, my God. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. We're returning to uh, this portion of uh, the Psalms here for a second time. And and I've joined the two Psalms together tonight in the reading because many commentators believe that Psalm 42 and 43 perhaps were one continual uh, Psalm, uh, or at least uh, Psalm 43 is a continuation or an extension of Psalm 42. And we're looking at this Psalm um, as the writer discusses the issue in his own life with extreme bouts of discouragement, uh, depression. Uh, the condition known as spiritual depression is a common uh, condition to many. And I think at some point, or at least to some level, almost all of us at sometimes face discouragement that may even progress um, in times of uh, difficulty to times of depression. So the, these psalms really speak to that issue and uh, to try to encourage our hearts to deal with the situation when we find ourselves in this kind of a situation. Now, obviously, we live in a world that's fallen, and there's kind of all kinds of issues around us, adversity and 
accompanying emotional pain comes from um, uh, in many forms, and it comes in this fallen world quite often. It could be a variety of things, the heartache of an unhappy marriage, the disappointment of a miscarriage uh, of pregnancy, or the grief over spiritually indifferent or rebellious children. We all face issues in life that cause us to be unhappy, troubled, discouraged. Uh, again, the loss of a job, the death of a loved one, the, the ache of loneliness, uh, the rejection of others, failure sometimes caused by our own faults or actions, or uh, a sudden diagnosis of a serious or terminal disease. So in a fallen world, we're faced with all kinds of circumstances, that uh, many of which we never expected or wished for. And sometimes these situations lead us to uh, anxiety. They rob us of our peace, and they uh, lead us to extreme discouragement, despair, and again, sometimes even uh, moments or times even of dark depression. And the truth is, it doesn't have to be a major issue uh, in our life that can lead this direction, uh, that can rob us of our joy and cause us uh, to uh, uh, enter into frustration or anxiety. Sometimes just the mundane things of life uh, that we encounter over and over again lead us to times of discouragement. Uh, and, and we're all familiar with them, just the mundane things of life. The washing machine breaks. Uh, your computer crashes just about uh, just before you're about to make a major presentation. You tear your favorite shirt or your dress or whatever. You have a flat tire and you have no spare. I mean, there's all these kind of things are kind of pale, obviously, in the significance of the major events of life. But little frustrations in life can kind of build up. Little disappointments can attempt us to become anxious again when they pile up, when they continue to pile up, when it's just one thing after another. Uh, they, ca- they tend to cause us to doubt or to fret or to worry. Uh, your, your car breaks down, right? Your car breaks down. You don't know how you're going to get to work, let alone pay for it. Since when your car broke down, you already have more uh, bills than you have money and more days in the month than before the, the money runs out. But thankfully, you don't have to worry about your car today and that it is broken because your garage door has just broken and it won't open and your car's trapped inside there and you can't get it out, right? I mean, isn't that kind of life? Car's broken, garage door's broken. Now you found out you've got a leak in the, in the roof. It needs to be repaired. The well pump goes out. The main drain has collapsed in your house. The heater in your house has quit working in the middle of winter. I don't know any of these kind of things ever happened to anybody else in the room, you know? These kind of issues of life just pile up. Uh, Again, even these minor ones cause us at times, I think, to be greatly discouraged. Solomon says, uh, Proverbs 27, 1, says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day might bring forth. Someone said life is like having a thick curtain uh, stretched upon your, uh, across your path, and it recedes uh, and it uh, recedes back and advances only as you take one step at a time. Uh, None of us can tell what's beyond the curtain, None of us can tell the events of a single day, let alone an hour, uh, that uh, might come next into our life. And sometimes that uh, curtain, when it does push back, it reveals things that are expected. But oftentimes when the curtain recedes back, it expresses many things that are frequently unexpected and then often undesired. So these kind of things in life fill our hearts with anxiety and frustration and grief and disappointment and discouragement. And some of them even perhaps lead us to depression. So how do you deal with life? How do you deal with all these kinds of situations that are common in a fallen world for men under the sun? Well, that's what the psalmist is talking about here in Psalm 42. He's showing us how to deal with life, how to face life in the mounting difficulties that have devastated his heart. And he's telling us how he rallied his heart, how he rallied his soul to take a look at God. 
He realized that in the midst of his life when discouragement was great, that the consolation that he would receive from God was even greater still. As one writer has said, these psalms show believers how to overcome bouts of depression, and they describe the upward the upward look of a downcast soul that finds its peace and trust in God. That's a great statement, right? These psalms, 42, 43, describe the upward look of a downcast soul that finds peace and trust in God. Now, we made it through verse 5, I think, or just got into that, or maybe even just started into verse 6 last time before we stopped. So let's go back and do a little bit of a review. It's going to be a little extended, but I hope it's helpful. And then we'll move forward with the text. Now, again, the superscription over Psalm 42, uh, the title says, For the choir director, a mascal of the sons of Korah. And that term, uh, mascal, you might remember I told you, means a psalm of instruction. Uh, or someone has said, here's wise counsel how to trust God through tough times. That's probably a, a good idea. And this is wise counsel about trusting God through tough times. Now, I told you also last time there's a lot of discussion amongst the commentators exactly who wrote the psalm. Was it really actually written by the sons of Korah? Or maybe it was perhaps by David. There are a number of people who think it was written by David. I'll accept the superscription as for what it says is written by the sons of Korah. And again, perhaps some prominent um, Levite from that family or uh, a group of uh, leadership, maybe they accompanied David on an occasion in his flight from Absalom. So I think that's kind of a reasonable compilation of both kinds of ideas, written by uh, uh, sons of Korah, but along with David uh, during times of difficulty. Now, again, we don't know specifically who wrote it, exactly who wrote it. We don't know the exact situation that the events have uh, risen that's caused the... uh, psalmist to be discouraged or depressed uh, we don't but we do know that the psalmist is not going to stay depressed we know that he's going to confront his depression he's going to seek god with a renewed intensity and a vigor and he's going to show us how too we can also deal with and confront and overcome our depression if we follow his example as he uh, his soul was to trust and turn to the person of god the hope in god so what the psalmist does here is first off is he confronts himself he confronts himself in the situation, and again, this is the first step in conquering depression. You have to admit it, and then when it happens, you have to confront it. You have to confront yourself. Look, look repeatedly what he says, verse 5. Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Drop down to verse 11. Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? You go to chapter 43, verse 5, the same question. Why are you in despair? Why are you disturbed? Again, three times, these different verses, he asked the same question. Why? What is wrong? Why are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? And the word uh, despair, uh, it means laid low, bowed down, prostrated. So again, life is complex. It's complex. It's full of many kind of difficulties and troubles, circumstances, perplexities, the things that can cause us to be depressed, discouraged, overwhelmed with life. I do think that there are certain personality types, perhaps certain temperaments, that kind of lend themselves to more discouragement. People who tend to be a little more uh, on the introverted side, people who are always analyzing everything uh, that they do, people that are introspective, highly introspective. Uh, There's nothing wrong with that kind of a temperament, uh, because some of the greatest saints, I think, in the history of the church have had that kind of uh, introspective, introverted uh, deep thinking, or they were deep thinkers. They analyzed everything, and they worried often about the possible effects of their actions. 
Uh, for example, Henry Martin, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he was a missionary to India. Uh, he, he probably belonged to this personality type. Uh, he said uh, this. He says, now let me burn out for God. Uh, that, that was the first words the writer says that Henry Martin said when he arrived to Calcutta in April 1806. He probably had little idea how fast the blaze would consume him as he died six years later at the age of 31. Eager to devote his life to the Lord's work in India with an incredible determination and unselfish dedication, Martin compressed a lifetime of service into six years. Martin was one of the greatest missionaries sent from England to India, and when he went to India, he went to a Hindu temple when he first arrived, and he saw something there that horrified him at the Hindu temple. He saw a picture of Muhammad, and bowing down and worshiping Muhammad in the picture was Jesus Christ. Henry Martin wrote this in his diary. He said, this picture excited more horror in me than I can well express. I was cut to the soul at this blast from me. I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. It would be hell for me if I were to be always, if he was to be always thus dishonored. And when he was asked why he felt like that, he replied, if anyone pucks out your eye, there's no saying why there's pain. It is feeling, and it is because I am one with Christ that I am thus dreadfully wounded. Here's a guy who thinks very deeply, right? And he sees something, and again, it causes him great introspection, and it causes him great pain to see the person of Christ uh, even a blaspheme in a picture. So again, introverts tend to be deep thinkers. Uh, The person uh, who is more on the extroverted side generally is more of a superficial person. That doesn't mean that that's bad. It doesn't mean that one's uh, better than the other or worse than the other. Uh, The issue is we're all different. We all have different kind of personalities. I think what it does mean, as we realize that there are some people who are introverted and some people are extroverted, I think what it does mean is we probably need to know ourselves. We need to know how we look at life, how we approach life. Uh, We need to have an understanding a little bit of our own personality. Because understanding that reality of who we are and how we're kind of made up, the person who's more introverted, again, tends to be a little more prone uh, to melancholy, uh, sadness, depression. Uh, And self-examination of that uh, personality type, I think, is okay to a point. But when it moves past or moves to a position of deep uh, introspection, even morbidity, uh, it's a problem. Uh, when there's repeated self-examination, become, when that becomes the main or the chief end uh, of someone's life, uh, somebody wrote it like this. He says, when you're always putting your soul on a plate and dissecting it. And you know people like that. Maybe you're a person like that. Uh, that's introspection. And sometimes uh, introspection is fine, but sometimes too much introspection is not fine. Uh, too much focusing on ourselves is, is I think, always dangerous. Uh, again, a bit is okay, but too much is paralyzing. You look at guys in the Bible, Jeremiah, uh, John the Baptist, perhaps, the Apostle Paul, Luther, uh, throughout church history, uh, they were probably in this kind of condition, uh, discouraged often, uh, depressed, uh, overanalyzing. In fact, uh, of Martin Luther, uh, Charles Spurgeon wrote this. He says, it is not necessary by quotations from the biographies of eminent men or it is not necessary by quotations from the biographies of eminent ministers to prove that uh, seasons of fearful prostration fall onto the lot of most, if not all of them. The life of Luther might suffice to give thousands of instances, and he was by no means of the weaker sort. 
His great spirit was often in the seventh heaven of exaltation and was frequently on the borders of despair. His very deathbed was not free from the tempest, and he sobbed himself into his last sleep like a great weary child. Spurgeon goes on and he says, Sometimes the children of light walk in thick darkness, and the heralds of daybreak find themselves in times of tenfold night. That's reality. Sometimes the children of light walk in thick darkness, and the heralds of daybreak find themselves in, ten, uh, in times of tenfold night. One of my favorite chapters in all of Spurgeon's writings, and I'm sure that you probably have some favorites, but one of my favorites comes from his book, Lectures to My Students. My favorite chapter in that book is called The Minister's Fainting Fits. So when I find myself tired, discouraged, from preaching and teaching and studying and shepherding, I often return to that chapter and I read it. I mean, I reread it and reread it and reread it. And me personally, I find great consolation and encouragement in it because he gives certain reasons in there that seem reasonable to me why the servants of the Lord, pastors, people who are in ministry at times get downcast and discouraged. He puts a lot of things in that chapter I think that are helpful, but probably the most helpful or one of the more helpful things that he says is for ministers, pastors, is we're but men. We're just men. He says this, being men, we're compassed, uh, uh, compassed, uh, uh, with uh, infirmity, heirs of sorrow, great travail is created for all men, and a heavy yoke on the sons of Adam from the day that they go out of their mother's womb until the day of their death. He says, good men are promised tribulation in this world, and ministers may expect a larger share than others that they may learn sympathy with the Lord's suffering people, and so may be fitting shepherds of an ailing flock. Disembodied spirits, he says, might have been sent to proclaim the word, but they could have not entered into the feelings of those uh, being in his uh, in, in this body, do groan and being burdened. Angels might have been ordained evangelists, but their celestial attributes would have disqualified them from having compassion on the ignorant. Men of marble might have been fashioned, but their impassive natures would have been a sarcasm upon our feebleness and a mockery of our wants. He writes this, men and men subject to human passions and all wise God has chosen to be the vessels of grace. Hence these tears, hence these perplexities and these casting downs. That's a pretty good statement. We're just men, all of us, just mere men. So sometimes there's a tendency towards despondency or depression, discouragement, however it um, manifests itself in your life. Sometimes that comes from personality. Sometimes it comes from the spiritual burden that you're bearing, either your own spiritual burden or the burden of others. Sometimes it comes from physical conditions, and sometimes it's a combination of all the above. Certain physical conditions or ailments tend to cause men to be more discouraged, even depressed. Uh, Again, Charles Spurgeon, one of the great preachers of all time, uh, was a man who was very much subject to uh, spiritual depression. And, and no doubt part of his personality uh, was a contributing factor to that. But also, uh, along with that, he suffered physically just uh, terribly. Suffered from gout, uh, which caused him excruciating pain. And he also had a, some kind of a kidney disease there towards the end of his life, and that eventually killed him. And I came across this quote, and I thought it was helpful just to get a little bit of an idea of the physical pain uh, that he was in. It was from an article he wrote in The Sword and the Trial, which is a 
magazine he published, and he writes this in 1871. This is Spurgeon. He says, It is a great mercy to be able to change sides when lying in bed. Did you ever lie a week on one side? Did you ever try to turn and find yourself quite helpless? Did others lift you and by their kindness reveal to you the miserable fact that they must lift you back again at once to the old position, for bad as it was, it's preferable to this other? It is a great mercy, he says, to get one hour sleep a night. What mercy I have felt to have only one knee tortured at a time. What a blessing it is to be able to put a foot on the ground again, if only for one minute. He speaks about being racked with so much pain, uh, sometimes to such an extreme degree of pain that he could no longer uh, bear it without crying. And when those times came, he would ask everybody to leave the room so that he could cry out to God for relief sometimes screaming with excruciating pain. On top of that, again towards the end of his life, the pain grew um, intensely with the gout, and then the problem of his kidneys began to develop. On top of that, his wife started to suffer physically. On top of that, he was involved, if you know anything about his life, in the midst of a great theological uh, battle known as the downgrade controversy. And early in the controversy, he com- commented, that he had, and this is his word, suffered the loss of friendships, reputation, the infliction of pain, financial loss, bitter reproach. But the pain that it has cost me, none can measure. To a friend in May 1891, he said, Goodbye, I'll never see you again. This fight is killing me. He's got his own physical problems. He's got his wife's health problems. He's got the problems of the church. He's got these theological battles that are going on in the background. So he was discouraged. Often, sometimes greatly so, the prince of preacher, the prince of preachers, as Spurgeon was often known, was also known by some as the prince of pain, because he battled with such great depression. And speaking of his own depression, he says, "The worst ill in the world is a depressed spirit. Depression is, he says, the shadow of death. Depression is my horror and my great darkness." Spurgeon once preached a sermon entitled The Christian's Heaviness and Rejoicing, wherein he said, My spirit, my spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child and yet not know what I wept for. He, caused, he called this causeless depression, causeless depression, meaning that he didn't know why. He didn't know why he was downcast. And then when he got in that position, he often felt ashamed because he was so vulnerable to such despondency. And that's exactly the words, isn't it, in the psalm in front of us? That's exactly what the psalmist is saying. Verse 5, why? Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you downcast? Why have you become disturbed within me? Why, Why are you in turmoil? And again, I think there has to be a certain sense in asking the question, uh, um, what's wrong with me? Right? What's wrong with me? Why, why am I feeling like this? In another sermon entitled, Our Leader Through Darkness, Spurgeon gave his understanding of depression, which in Victorian England was called exceeding heaviness. That's what they called depression, exceeding heaviness. 
And he called this exceeding heaviness depression of spirit. And he said, it is deep when accompanied with the loss of the light of God's countenance. Or it's deep when you feel like that God has turned his favor from you or turned his face from you. Spurgeon said depression is not merely dullness, pessimism, or deep unhappiness. Depression, according to Spurgeon, was to feel that God's presence had been removed from him, which led him to extreme heaviness. So for Spurgeon, he was in love with the person of Christ. He would say that Christ was the nearest and dearest, closest, most uh, intense and enduring relationship uh, that could be imagined. He loved Christ. Christ was everything to him. So then why did he find himself at times deeply depressed? Why was his soul downcast? And again, life's full of these kind of why questions, right? Why? And why questions really lie at the core of our depression. They're the, perhaps in some sense, the source of our depression. We ask why. Why have I lost my job? Why did my baby die? Why have I gotten cancer? Why did my mother die? Why did my spouse die? Why have my children turned against me? And Spurgeon takes the whole discussion a little bit deeper, in fact, quite a bit deeper, when he recalls Christ's dying words, Matthew 27, verse 46, Christ's dying words, My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? So when trouble enters into our life, we always want to know why. We don't know, we want to know what the issue is, what the issue is with the particular circumstances that we find ourselves in that have caused our trouble. Why is this happening? And if we're honest, the next question is we want to know why God hasn't stepped in and stopped the whole thing. Why do we feel like God has abandoned us in our times of difficulty? And the Lord Jesus Christ said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So again, at times there seems like there's no particular reason or obvious cause for depression, and yet we find ourselves downcast, we find ourselves in turmoil. Again, we ask the question, why? Why am I downcast? Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? But listen, even in the deepest of despair, Spurgeon saw that his depression was ordained of God. Even in the deepest despair, Spurgeon saw his depression was ordained of God for God's glory and for his own sanctification. He never believed that his sufferings were by accident. You should write this next statement down. Spurgeon said this, Fate is blind, providence has eyes. Fate is blind, providence has eyes. Spurgeon had an unwavering uh, belief in God's sovereignty. And his unwavering belief in God's sovereignty was essential for his well-being. He said this, It would be a very sharp and trying experience for me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never filled by his hand, that my trials were never measured out by him, nor sent to me by his arrangements of their weight and quantity. He says, if you drink of the river of affliction near its outfall, it is brackish and offensive to taste, but if you will trace it to its source, where it rises from the foot of the throne of God, you will find its waters to be sweet and health-giving. As long as I trace my pain to accident, 
my bereavement to mistake, my loss to another's wrong, my discomfort to an enemy, and so on. I am the of the earth, earthly, and shall break my teeth with gravel stones, but when I rise to my God and see his hand at work, I grow calm, and I have not a word of repining. He understood that the source of everything in life comes from God. Not chance, not accident. Fate is blind, providence has eyes. So again, not only did Spurgeon see his depression as ordained of God, but he knew that it was part of God's plan and purpose in his own life for an effective ministry. Because he knew that God could use him much more to comfort others with afflicted souls if he himself had gone through depths of affliction and depths of suffering. It's exactly what uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, verse 4, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted with by God. It's hard to comfort others if you've not gone through some kind of struggle, but if you know something of struggle and you know something of God's comfort in your own life, then you can be an encouragement much more to those people who are going through struggle. God who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. So again, Spurgeon understood it was part of God's sovereignty, it was God's plan, God ordained these things in his life. Again, in part for effective ministry, and Spurgeon understood that he was being conformed into the image of a Savior. Again, when he stopped and considered the dying words of Christ, he understood that Jesus himself knew what it was to be, what it was like, or what it felt like to be forsaken of God. So in the midst of his suffering, silent that day, Christ broke that silence, that afternoon with that scream of agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Spurgeon understood that at that moment, it was God the Father pouring out his wrath upon Christ on the cross, and Spurgeon said, this is a prelude to hell, that one was completely unendurable. And the Prince of Peace, that moment, becomes the Prince of Pain, because Christ is our substitute who takes away not only our sin, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, but Jesus as our substitute. Jesus is our prince when he's bearing the wrath of God. Jesus takes away our hell for us at that very same moment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Spurgeon understood in the midst of his own suffering, he was being conformed to the image of Christ, sharing the glories of Christ, sharing also in the suffering of the Savior. He also knew in the midst of his deep despair that uh, Christ understood what it was like to feel forsaken of God. Uh, Again, a feeling Spurgeon often experienced, which again caused him to draw closer to Christ. Christ, to the writer of the book of uh, Isaiah, right? The writer in Isaiah chapter 53 said, Christ, who was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hid their face, Despised, we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore our sorrows he carried. When Spurgeon felt depressed, discouraged, it caused him to draw close to Christ because he knew Christ was of like mind. 
In the words of another, it says, Spurgeon's struggle with depression is more <laughs> linked to Jesus' depression than we initially think because the prince of preacher knew personally the prince of pain. I like that. The prince of preachers knew personally the prince of pain. So again, depression is common. It's common among everyone, uh, even great men. Uh, sometimes the tendency towards depression uh, comes from personality. Sometimes it comes from a spiritual burden that we're bearing. Sometimes it comes from physical condition. Sometimes it comes from a con- combination of all of the above. Sometimes we don't even know why. What's causing it? Sometimes it comes from just the highs and lows in life, successes and failures. Uh, even after great uh, spiritual battles are won, I think about Elijah in the Old Testament. Old Testament after his uh, battle there with the prophets of Baal there on Mount Carmel, he has that great victory. Yet in the next moment, he finds himself discouraged and depressed to the point of death because uh, this wicked Jezebel threatens him. I mean, you could go on and on. The, the list isn't exhaustive, <clears throat> but uh, just to try to bring the <laughs> non-exhaustible list to some kind of conclusion. I think probably another thing that you could maybe throw in there, depression, um, has to at least be considered uh, the, the adversary of our souls. He's out there. Uh, he, he's always accusing us. You, you don't want to give him too much credit, but on the other hand, you don't want to ignore him completely because he is there. Paul says, Ephesians six twelve for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And the reality is he can use our temperament, or he can use our physical condition, he can use our situation in life and throw little slings and arrows our direction. He can encourage us to error and not into thinking critically or not into thinking biblically or to rest on our emotions rather than reality and truth. So again, the adversary of our soul can encourage us to look at ourselves rather than to look up to God and look up to Christ. Ultimately, I think the cause of all spiritual depression on whatever level has to be unbelief at some level. At some level, we're not listening to God. At some level, we're listening to the voice of someone else, the voice of ourselves, perhaps, listening to the voice of devil instead of listening to the voice of God. It's unbelief. So that's why, in part, the psalmist confronts himself. Why are you in despair? Why do you feel hopeless? Well, my soul, why are you disturbed within me? Why are you anxious? And then look what he does next. He commands his soul. He says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. He commands himself. So first, the the psalmist confronts himself. He admits the fact that he's depressed. Because that's the very first uh, step in dealing with depression. You recognize it. You confront yourself and you begin to ask the question, why? Why are you depressed? Then he speaks truth to himself. He reminds himself of God and God's power and God's goodness and his belief in God and the relationship that he has with God. And he encourages his heart, his soul towards God. He commands himself hope in God. Praise God. Right, hope in God and then praise God for his very presence. So that's the second step when you deal with the issue of uh, depression is you have to think biblically. You have to think biblically. You have to learn, we have to all learn to think biblically and we have to respond biblically to trials and difficulties in our life. 
And that's one of the most critical issues I think we can all learn as believers. We, we live in a feelings-oriented culture. We have to be aware of that. We have to be weary of that. We have to, according to 1 Timothy 4, 7, discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Uh, again, to be disciplined means we go against our feelings. You might not want to exercise, but if you're disciplined, you go against your feelings and you do it anyway. We can't let the cycles of life, the ups and downs of our emotions, set the stage or the agenda for our lives. If we deny our feelings or seek to conquer them, the world says we're in denial. But as believers, we are called to think biblically, to have a biblical theology of emotions. And again, many believers are defeated and depressed by negative emotions because we don't take the biblical approach to dealing with our problems. Again, I think even mature uh, believers struggle in this area at times. So we have to bring our thinking under control, under control of the Bible. We have to bring our, uh, our uh, depression under control of the Holy Spirit, not be led by our emotions, not be led by our flesh. We're called to be led by the person of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. We're called to be filled by him, continually controlled by him, because when we're walking by him, when we're walking under the power of the Holy Spirit, our emotions are going to be marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Right? So the psalmist says, look, why? What is the issue? Why are you in despair on my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Then he commands his soul, hope in God. Then he takes the next step and he intentionally makes a decision. He says, for I shall again praise him. Then he takes another step and he remembers. He remembers the truth. I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. He reminds himself of the fact that God's promised to never leave us or forsake us. He reminds himself of the fact that God dwells within his people. He reminds himself of the fact that we're never alone. Listen, he reminds himself that we are never alone. Never. So in the midst of the struggle, the psalmist turns to the only place that he can find help. He turns to God, to the living God. And living by faith means we choose to believe God and we believe God's truth. We choose to believe God and his word rather than to base our lives on our circumstances that are always changing or to base our lives on our emotions that are fickle and also ever-changing. Verse 1. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Now again, whatever the particular cause of the psalmist's depression, he realizes the only source of his help is God himself. So in times of emotional turmoil, in times of spiritual dryness, in times of depression, he says, I desperately need you, God. I need you. Not not just what you can do for me, but I need you. I need you personally. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Then he adds this, when shall I come and appear before God? 
So again, very likely in the context of his discouragement, he's feeling like he's been cut off from God. He, he longs not only for the person of God, for this deep, personal, intimate contact uh, with the living God, his God. He longs for corporate fellowship. I spoke of this last time. He, he, he longs for corporate worship. He loves to come to church on Sunday. Sunday morning and Sunday evening, just like you, right? He wants to be with God's people. The circumstances of his life have cut him off from regular attendance. He remembers back when he enjoyed the blessing of being with God's people. Verse 4, these things I remembered and poured out my soul within me. Or the New English translation says, uh, I remember and weep. He's heartbroken because of the absence of corporate worship. He says, for I used to go along with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. New Living Translation says, My heart's breaking as I remember how it used to be when I walked among the crowds of worshipers leading a great procession to the house of God, singing with joy, giving thanks amid the sound of great celebration. His heart's breaking. He wants to be again part of the corporate fellowship. He wants to be a part of corporate worship. He wants to be a part of God's people where they're all praising and worshiping and adoring God and loving God together because God's worthy of that. He wants to be around God's people because he's tired of being depressed and discouraged from the non-believers in his life, from those who taunt him, the taunts of his enemies. Verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where's your God? So he stops, and his present circumstances are having discouraged. He intentionally remembers back to better days. He thinks about God's goodness. He thinks about what an encouragement that was for him. Again, verse 4, these things I remember. And again, with great intentionality, he does that. With these things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go along with the throng and lead them in the procession of the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving and a multitude of keeping festivals. So again, in times of difficulty, in times of discouragement, depression, spiritual, uh, on a spiritual level, uh, we need to remind ourselves who God is, what God is like, what God has done for us. And we need to remind ourselves of the gospel. The fact that God has loved us. The fact that God has loved us and saved us in Christ. The fact that nothing can ever separate us from God's eternal love. We need to think biblically. We need to remember biblical truth. We need to live biblical truth. We need to live biblically by faith, again, choosing to believe God's word rather than to be uh, conformed or uh, um, shaped by our external circumstances. You know how it is in your own life, right? <clears throat> your, your life could be not going very well, and you know how when you come here on Sunday morning, it's better for some reason. You still have all, certain, all the problems you have in your life, but it's better to be with God's people, is it not? That's what he's saying. I, I need God. I need God's people. I need to remember the truth. And then I think we need to all stop and not only remember the truth and be with God's people, we need to look at our present circumstances and ask, look, is there something in my life that I'm not doing, something right, something that needs to be changed in my life? Is there circumstances in my life that are there because of known sin on my part? You look at Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, David, uh, David's depression and those psalms uh, in those situations, those psalms are really due to his own personal sin. So if you have sin in your life, disobedience in your life, you need to confess that immediately and turn away from it. Receive the cleansing, the blessing, the forgiveness, the healing that God has promised to his people in Christ. But in the midst of suffering, 
In the midst of circumstances, if there's not any particular known sin in our life, then we just need to continue to walk uprightly before God. Not giving in to the temptation to complain or to rail against God in times of difficulty. But instead, we need to seek Him. We need to desire Him. We need to turn our hearts and our souls upward to Him. We need to remember His goodness to us. We need to remember the times of joy and thanksgiving when we worship together with God's people. I told you last time, that's a proper use of memory. That's a proper use of memory. That's biblical thinking in life applied to all of life. Again, if there's no sin in our life that needs to be confessed, that is causing the situations directly leading to our circumstances, if the cause is to be overwhelmed, again, the psalmist doesn't mention anything that he knows of. Nonetheless, he finds himself in a position where he feels, listen, where he feels like God has rejected him. But listen, write this down. Feelings aren't the truth. Feelings aren't necessarily the truth. Feelings are different than truth. And we're called to live according to truth, no matter what our external circumstances are. And I mentioned it this morning, we always have access to God. Therefore, because we always have access to God, instant access to God, we have hope. God, our Heavenly Father, is there. He's promised never leave us, forsake us. He's the one who can step in and intercede and change not only our circumstance, but change our hearts. He's the one that can help us refocus our minds on the things that we know that are true. So again, in both of these Psalms, 42 and 43, three times the psalmist aggressively confronts himself in order to deal with his despair. Three times again, he reminds himself of the sense of the presence of God. He's not focusing on his circumstances, but he's focusing on the person of God himself. You see that in verse 5, verse 11, and then verse 5 of chapter 43, when he says, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. We might not be able to do anything to change our circumstances, but we can certainly change our focus. We may not be able to do anything to change our circumstances, but we can certainly change the focus of our hearts and our thoughts. We can choose to turn away from the overwhelming circumstances of our life and choose to intentionally focus on the person of God and choose to place our hope in Him and choose to intentionally praise Him, choose to praise Him for the help of His presence because He's the one who says, I'll never leave you or forsake you, right? We can choose to be obedient to the command of Scripture that says to rejoice always. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice, Philippians 4.4. 4. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication of thanksgiving, let your heart, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension shall guard your heart in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4.6 and following. Colossians 3.1, if we've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on these things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Again, we might not be able to change our circumstances, but we can certainly change our focus from self to God. And we can tell ourselves the truth. Remember the statement I shared with you last time, the Martin Lloyd-Jones statement, it's, it's worthy of a second look. 
or a second listen. He says, have you not realized that most of our unhappiness or most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? I say that all the time around here. We've got to start uh, uh, um, talking truth to ourselves. He says, this man, the psalmist, instead of allowing self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself, and you must say to your soul, why are you downcast? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, abrade yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope in God. Instead of muttering in the depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on and remind yourself of God, who God is, what God is, what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Then, having done that, at the end of that great note, defy yourself and defy other people and defy the devil and the whole world and say with this man, I shall yet praise him for the help of his presence, who's the health of my countenance in my God. That's a tremendous statement. Those are all intentional things that you can do. Talk to yourself. Speak the truth to yourself. Feelings are going to lie to you. The devil's going to come along and he's going to suggest to you how poor of an individual you are because you don't uh, uh, trust the scripture. He's going to encourage you just to keep going down that path of discouragement because you don't feel like obeying. The devil's going to come along and say something along the lines of what a mess you are, what a poor excuse you are for a Christian. How can you live like that? How can you act like that? How can you call yourself a believer? You don't deserve to be saved. All of those truths in the Bible, you know, they're for somebody else. They're for everybody else except you. You're a reprobate. You don't deserve joy. You don't deserve God's kindness. You don't deserve his presence. Why in the world would he love you? There's no hope for you. The world would be a better place without you. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. So when you hear that kind of nonsense, when you find yourself walking in times of darkness, you need to make a decision, again, whether or not you feel like it or not. You need to reject all of the voices outside of the word of God and intentionally believe God's word only. You need to make a decision, whether you feel it or not, to reject all the voices outside of the word of God and to intentionally believe God's word. Believe the scripture. Believe what God says to be true. Believe God's word and God's word alone is true. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be what? Saved. You know what else that word means? It means delivered. Delivered. Delivered from sin. Delivered from condemnation. Delivered from the lies of the devil. You have two choices. Believe the truth or believe the the lies of the devil. Listen to what Christ said back in Matthew chapter 5. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So in your time of darkness, if you want true joy, true happiness, here's the key. Blessed or happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or after righteousness. So if you want joy or happiness in a time of difficulty in your life, you have to turn away from yourself, turn away from your feelings, turn away from the world and all the nonsense that the devil puts out there, and stop uh, uh, stop listening and say to yourself, I don't have time to worry about my feelings. 
I'm not interested in those kind of things anymore. I, I, all I want to be is righteous. All I want to do is be holy. Blessed or happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So I want to be more like Christ. I, I want to be more like my Lord. I want to live, live like him in, in this world. I want to walk through this world the way he walked through this world. I want to deal with issues in the world the, the same way he dealt with issues in this world as a man. And when you do that, when you take your focus off yourself and off the circumstances, when you set your mind and your heart solely upon the person of Christ and his righteousness, when you seek him and seek him only, then you'll be encouraged because then you'll be blessed, then you'll be happy because he's where supreme joy is found. Light in the midst of darkness is always found in Christ. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. In your right hand there is pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16, verse 11. So if you find yourself discouraged, find yourself depressed, don't sit down and listen to yourself. Don't sit down and commiserate yourself. Don't try to work up some feelings that aren't there. Go directly to him. Go directly to your Heavenly Father. Seek his face. When our kids are in trouble and they come to us, a father has no more greater privilege than to try to meet the needs of his children, right? Why would our Heavenly Father be elsewise? Dad will take care of it. Don't worry about your circumstance. Don't worry about your situation. Especially if God is your Heavenly Father. Because He alone is where your happiness is going to be found. And when you pursue him, seek his face, then joy will be found. Your joy will come back to you. So we've got to stop focusing on feelings. We've got to start focusing on the truth. Feelings are never meant to take place, first place in our life. Feelings are not meant to control us. Truth has to control us. Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. You want blessed? You want happy? You want joy? Pursue Christ. So in the midst of suffering, in the midst of discouragement, depression, we need to confront ourselves, number one. We need to ask why we're depressed. Again, why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Secondly, we need to speak to our souls. We need to command our souls. We need to rouse ourselves to seek the person of God because he's our only hope, our only help. No matter how discouraging our circumstances might be, hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. And thirdly, we need to think biblically about our circumstances. We need to think biblically about our circumstances, our troubles, and think biblically about our God. Here's the question. Does God love you? Answer? Yes. Has he proved that? Answer? Yeah. Has he promised to never leave you or forsake you? Answer? Yeah. So stop praying, Lord, be with us. I'm not trying to be condescending or difficult, but stop praying that. Thank him for his presence in the midst of the struggle. 
Thank him that the Lord Jesus Christ says, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Guess what always means in the Greek? Right? Psalm 139, verse 7, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise in the wings of the dawn, if I settle in the far east of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will lay hold fast of me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light becomes night around me, even darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for the darkness and light are alike to you. We need to think biblically. We need to think biblically about our circumstances, think biblically about our troubles, think biblically about God. And if we're going to think biblically, and we're going to think biblically about all of those things, and think biblically about our circumstances, we need to ask ourselves, do we actually believe? Do we actually believe what God says to be true? I'm telling you, that's the bottom line issue. Do we believe that God's really sovereign? Do we believe that God is really in control over all things, all of our circumstances, all of our situations in our life, or not? And then, will we trust Him? Do we trust Him? Is God sovereign even over the evil and the sinful things that go on in this world, or is He not? Do we really believe that no one can thwart His purposes? Now, again, it's easy to doubt. It's easy to forget the sovereignty of God when we're overwhelmed by emotion and overwhelmed in the midst of a trial. But notice again in the psalm, that's exactly what the psalmist does. He intentionally sets his mind on trusting God, verse 7, even in the hard times. Again, back up a little bit. Why are you in despair on my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Verse 6, O oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember thee from the land of the Jordan, from the peaks of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Again, it's an intentional remembering the fact that God is who he is, that God has promised to never leave him or forsake him, even though he's a long way from home. Verse 7, deep calls to deep at the sounds of thy waterfalls. All thy breakers and thy ways have rolled over me. Or in the ESV, it says, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers, all your waves have gone over me. Steve Lawson says this. He says, the psalmist who sought the flowing streams of water in verses 1 and 2, when he found the tempest of water overwhelming his soul, his distress is figuratively portrayed by the illusion derived from violent waters, deep calls to deep and the roar of your waterfalls. The phrase he says, deep calls to deep, pictures one wave of deep calling out to another wave of deep and the coordination of uh, coordination to conspire their efforts to drown the psalmist, figuratively speaking. He continues and says, all your ways, uh, waves and all your breakers have swept over me. Lawson says he's like a stranded sailor clinging to a piece of driftwood on a raging storm. He is tossed back and forth and is taking in water, sinking fast with no help or no hope of rescue. And you get the picture, right? When you're discouraged, when you're depressed, overwhelmed, you feel like you're drowning. That's what he's saying. But again, look what the psalmist is saying. In the midst of his trials, 
he affirms that these crashing waves belong to God because he says, your breakers, your waves. And in a fallen world, there are evil men around him and evil men are oppressing him. But the psalmist is confident in the fact that God has them on a leash, as it were. God has sent the trial, whatever it is, into his life for his own good purposes. Again, remember Spurgeon's great words, his unwavering belief in God's sovereignty. Fate is blind, providence has eyes. It would be a very sharp and trying experience for me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was neither was never filled by his hand, that my trials were never measured out by him nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. So again, in the midst of the great circumstances of his life, difficulties and struggles in his life, Spurgeon's placing his his, uh, confidence in the sovereignty of God. Spurgeon's placing his hope in the sovereignty of God. It would be a very sharp and trying experience for me to think that I have affliction which God never sent me. One writer says this, Stephen Cole, he says, I hear some Christians say that God didn't cause the trial. He just, quote-unquote, allowed it. As if somehow that gets him off the hook. Or they blame Satan for a trial as if he sneaked up and did it when God was asleep. But the Bible's clear that trials come from the Lord for our benefit. You may think, how can God be good and bring catastrophe in the lives of his children? Cole says, our problem is we underestimate the strength of our flesh. We are blind to the extent of our pride. We are dull to how much we love this wicked world. So the Lord in love sends overwhelming trials to teach us not to trust ourselves, but to trust in him alone. So again, in the midst of difficulties and trials and depression, we need to confront ourselves. Ask, what is wrong with us? Why are we depressed? We need to command our souls to put our trust in God. We need to think biblically about God, about our circumstances, about our situation, about God's sovereignty. Then we need to trust him. Because it's when we go through these trials that our faith is tested and our faith needs to be perfected, our faith needs to grow. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, the ultimate cause of all spiritual depression is unbelief. If it were not for unbelief, even the devil could do nothing. It is because we listen to the devil instead of listening to God that we go down before him and fall before his attacks. That is why the psalmist keeps saying to himself, Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. He reminds himself of God. Why? Because he was depressed and forgot God, so that his faith and his belief in God and God's power and his relationship to God were not what they ought to be. We can indeed sum it up by saying the final ultimate cause for spiritual depression is our unbelief. And again, the cure is to believe God and the cure is to do what? Seek the person of God, right? That's where hope's found. That's where joy is found. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I appear before him? All right? That's enough for tonight. Lord willing, we'll come back next week and finish uh, both the, the text and the next psalm. That's the plan, at least. All right, our Father and our God, we're thankful for this 
time in your word. We're thankful for the hope that we find in you by believing what you say to be true and by believing who you are and your tremendous love for us. Help us to do that. Help us to intentionally praise you, intentionally seek you, intentionally hope in you. The question ourselves often is the psalmist is doing, saying, what in the world's wrong with you? Why are you depressed? Why are you downcast? Hope. And the only place that hope is found in you, our God, and in Christ, our Savior. Again, you've proven your love to us, your eternal love and time by sending Christ, by transforming and changing our lives, forgiving our sin. We have all the reason in the world to hope. We should be, on one level, the least discouraged people on the planet because we know our eternal destiny. Again, we understand that there are certain things in life that cause us to be discouraged, and some of those are personality, and some of those are ailments. But the answer, the answer remains the same. It's you, our God, and Christ, our Savior. So help us to put our focus not on the world, but where it belongs, rightly upon you, rightly upon Christ. Help us to think biblically not to be guided by our emotions, by our feelings, but to be guided by truth. Your word is truth, and we're thankful for an opportunity to worship you this day, and we're thankful for the the joy, the blessing of the fellowship of God's people, that we can come together and honor you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.